Uh, We are in week four uh, of this series answering the question, what kind of church? Uh, More specifically, uh, we're answering the question, what kind of church uh, has God designed for us to be? Uh, What kind of church uh, would make a difference, would transform our city? Uh, Therefore, what kind of church is church central? And so far, uh, what we've done is said, well, this is the big picture of what God is doing. Uh, God's about having a people who displays glory to the very ends of the earth. And if that's good enough for God, then that's pretty much good enough for us as well. So for starters, we don't see the church as merely a meeting that we attend once a week. No, we are the people of God on a mission. We're living to see every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, every socio-economic group come together in this covenant community declaring the praises of God and living day by day for his glory. So when we gather together on a Sunday like this, we want to be equipped for the mission that God has called us to. And then when we scatter at the end of the morning, we want to go out into our city and make a real difference. Each of us playing a role in our companies, in our schools, on our campuses, in our offices, our hospitals, in our businesses, seeing everything we do as being for God and for his glory. And as we saw last week, Ultimately, we want to go beyond the confines of our city and send people to the very ends of the earth to take the gospel and bring in God's kingdom. That is the big picture. What we're going to be doing for the rest of this series is zooming in now on what this actually looks like worked out on the ground. How does this big picture shape our attitude towards things like worship and prayer and serving and giving and discipleship? Those are some of the things we're going to be touching on over the next few weeks. But this morning, I want us to see how all of this affects the way community looks among us. It's a hugely important subject. When community is strong it absolutely fuels mission. But when community is king, when that's the end goal, it absolutely kills mission. It's like every new person that joins the church is a threat to the community we've formed. Every change we do to enable us to be more effective in our mission is seen as something that attacks the community that we have. If community is just the end goal it undermines the mission we have. But when it is working well, when it's working as God has designed for it to work, it absolutely fuels mission. Before we get into this, I want to pray uh, and ask God to uh, maybe confront and challenge some of us uh, so that we would play more of a role in establishing community in the church here, but also that God would help us as we dive into what community looks like, help us keep this tension in terms of mission and community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that 
You have set us uh, into your people. You've called us to be part of a family. Thank you for your design for the church. Thank you also for community. Uh, Thank you, Father, Spirit, Son, that you perfectly model community within yourself. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, that despite the strength of community you had within the Trinity, uh, you came to earth to reach us. You were intensely, fiercely missional to draw us into the communities that you have eternally enjoyed within the Godhead. And I want to pray that you would help us as individuals and corporately as a church to to get a bit more of what community looks like and for each of us, uh, wherever we're at, to play our part uh, in bringing stronger community uh, to the church here. I pray you'll convict us. I pray you'll challenge us. I pray that each of us would leave this morning knowing specifically what we can do as a result of this. Amen. Okay, I want to kick off by just looking quickly at the basis or the foundation for community in the church and then uh, for the rest of the talk I want to show you how this community gets worked out in practice. Let's face it, uh, we live in a day and age where connectivity is way easier than it's probably been at any other point in all of world history. You can connect with people quicker than you've ever been able to before, and it doesn't require a whole lot of depth either. You can let people know, dare I say, the most useless bits of information about your life if you really want to. You can take pictures of your pets or the latest meal that you've eaten, or your new shoes, and stick them on Instagram, or Facebook, or Twitter for everyone else to share the joy, uh, or maybe not. But we feel, despite all of this, more alone and more unknown than at any time in human history. More connected, more in touch, more able just at the press of a button to speak to people on the other side of the world. But despite the fact it's easier to find people with shared common interests to get in touch, get in contact, sociologists are finding there's an epidemic of loneliness in our society. And so somewhere, somehow, something has gone awry with how we define community, how we define and function in relationships. Now, at the simplest level, I think the problem with all of our relationships, the reason why so few of them are satisfying and long-lasting, is they tend to be built on things that we have in common. Uh, And as those things we have in common with others change, so does the relationship. So, for example, just a few years ago now, when I was a student, I had a whole load of student friends, although just a couple of years have passed since those days, I've pretty much uh, lost contact with all of them, uh, wherever I've lived. Uh, I've had friends around me who I never really saw the moment I moved house to a different area. When I was single, I had way more single friends. When I was married without kids... Most of my friends ended up being married without kids. Then the moment kids arrived, it all changed again. Uh, It's kind of like as you transition out of one life stage into another, your connections, your relationships, your friendships change. Now, all that being said, 
The whole basis for our relationships in the church is what we have in common with one another. But it's not what you might think. If you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could quickly turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just to to give you the background to this passage, uh, the church in Corinth was probably the most chaotic, the most dysfunctional church in the history of Christianity. But despite that, Paul never disowns them. He, He continues to consider himself their father. He loves them, Yet he rebukes and corrects them at times, he he encourages them, patiently he works with them to try to put things right. It's like he's compelled by compassionate love for this dysfunctional group of people. And we're going to read why, we're going to read what held them together, starting in verse 14. Paul says, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so what we get here is that the basis for all of our relationships with one another in the church comes down to this. You and I, despite our backgrounds and the stories of our lives up until now, we all have this in common all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against God. Everyone in this room is guilty and all of us are in need of a righteousness that goes way beyond our own and we've found that righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's what we all have in common and so whether you are a student or a single mum or married with no kids, whether you're young or old, absolutely loaded or completely flat broke, whether you grew up in a church context or have barely ever been to church your whole life, what we all have in common is this. All of us have fallen short of the glory or the standard of God. All of us in all of our attempts to try to be good enough to satisfy God's perfect requirements, are lacking in some way. And Jesus has filled in the gap with his righteousness, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. He has purchased for us what we could never afford or earn. God has reconciled, he's brought us back together to himself in Christ. So, if you think about it, the thing that all of us here today have in common is something that never changes. All of us are sinners in need of grace. And that grace has been extended to all of us in Jesus Christ. That is the basis for all of our relationships in the church. It crosses every ethnic, every cultural, every social, every geographical, every gender divide. Absolutely every imaginable barrier to relating together as friends has been dismantled, obliterated, demolished through Jesus' death on the cross. Having established that, I want us to look at what this therefore looks like in practice. 
how are we then to relate to one another in the church? If you'd flip over to Romans 12, uh, we're going to be camped out in this passage for the rest of our time today. I, I, I want to give you a number of pointers out of what Paul says here. We're just going to work through it phrase by phrase, and as we do that, I want you to use it as a kind of checklist for yourself and the relationships, the attitudes you have uh, in the church here. Some of them you think, yep, I've got that one nailed. Others you might think, ouch, uh, I hope he's not looking at me in this. Um, I want you to use it as a checklist uh, to, to, to think, well, how could I myself invest more in community, in relationships in the church? Let's pick it up in verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9, Paul starts off by saying, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. Here's one of the problems I think any church can fall into if it's not careful. It's not hard to learn how we're supposed to talk, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, when we're supposed to raise our hands, how we're supposed to behave. And then, knowing all of that, just begin pretending. You you don't have to have any real love for Jesus. You just simply imitate the people around you and play the part. You, you therefore pretend you're all right when inwardly you know you're not. You, you pretend you're close to God even though perhaps you're not. And, and you create this external image that doesn't match the internal reality. The Bible doesn't mince its words on this. The, the Bible would call this hypocrisy. And it's so unnecessary. I mean, think about it. If the basis of our relationships is that all of us in this room have fallen short of the glory of God, then why on earth should it surprise anyone else in the room that I'm lacking in some way? It it, it really shouldn't surprise anyone that there are times in my life where I really wrestle with sin. I mean, the whole basis of our relationship with one another is built on this fact. I have rebelled against the God who created the universe, and it's by His grace alone that I am made righteous. I'm made right with Him. So, why on earth would I ever pretend that I am more than I am when this whole thing is built and established on the foundation that it's not about me in the first place? It's about His righteousness listen, you might well be sitting here today feeling pretty unwanted or unlovable. Uh, As we come to worship later, you might struggle to take part in it because you feel just unworthy before God or with the people around you. I want to say to you, you are believing a lie. The cross of Christ is evidence enough that God was well aware of all of your shortcomings, all of the times you mess up, all of your failures, you at your darkest moment, you at the most wicked point in your life. He knew it all, he saw it all, and yet he still extended grace and mercy to those who receive it. If you are a believer here this morning, When Jesus died on the cross, he knew absolutely every sin you would ever commit. Nonetheless, he 
went through with it. He carried the punishment for it all. Now, I don't know what you think, but I reckon that knowing this frees us to be very sincere and very honest with others and to receive their love and receive their acceptance of us. It also enables us to show genuine love to people who previously we might have held at arm's length or looked down on or maybe envied. I mean, if God could show love to me when I was at my very worst, surely I can do the same to others. Love must be sincere. Now, before we go any further, I do need to make a distinction here. The church is to be a community where it is absolutely safe for everyone to be honest about where they are. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we are then to turn a blind eye to ongoing unrepentant sin. And so, having told us that our love and acceptance for one another should be sincere, Paul then adds, reading on, hate what is evil. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil. And so, as a community here in the church, we're looking to create a safe environment for all of us to struggle well. But at the same time, we're also going to confront sin. Now, I think there's a personal responsibility in this we all have to to come against sin that we can see in our own life. There's also a community aspect to this as well, because I think probably all of us in this room have our own individual blind spots. There isn't anyone here who who doesn't have a blind spot when it comes to their own life. We, We all have some area that's not fully surrendered to God, and I'm not necessarily expecting you to know what it is right now because it's a blind spot. By definition, you you, you don't know what it is. And since it's true that probably all of us have it, how important is it to have friends around us who are willing to engage us and say, hey, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I think this could be a real issue for you. Surely, the most hypocritical, weak, sad, insipid form of love there is, is the type of love that sees someone you say you love in danger, and you simply hope it works out for them. I've got two sons, Nathan and Joel. I really don't think it's judgmental or unloving of me to confront them when they're doing things that is dangerous for them, that is in some way harming for them. For example, many years ago, when they were still toddlers, I I wouldn't stand in the house looking out of the window, watching them playing in the busy street outside, and just hope they're okay, just hope it works out for their best. I mean, I I know this is dangerous, and it could end up very nastily, but look how happy they are. I know it could end up in a bit of a mess, but let's keep our fingers crossed that it doesn't. In fact, I'm going to stay in the house, watch the traffic kind of near missing them. I'm just going to pray it will be okay. Doesn't that make me a horrible parent 
if that's how I play it. So in the end, I'm going to walk out of my house and I am going to forcibly engage them over this. And if on the back of that, they go back out into the middle of the road, I'm right back out there again. And this time we're not just talking. You discipline your children? Yeah, absolutely. Never with joy. But I discipline my kids because what's ultimately important to me and how my love for them works itself out is this ferocious commitment to their safety and their well-being and their good as much as I can control it. And I'd suggest that we're to kind of play that role with one another. In love and with grace. And, just to take this on a step, I think all of us would be wise to invite others to look out for those blind spots in our lives and to engage us over them. And I think we need to invite it so that when something happens, we can be reminded that we invited it in the first place. Otherwise, we'll be hard-pressed to hear other people's words of concern and correction. I mean, over the years, there have been a whole bunch of people that I've asked to watch and keep guard over my life, to point out things that cause them concern in me. I've invited people to speak into my life like that. But whenever any of them have actually taken up the offer and sat down with me and started pointing out some of those things, to this day, if I'm being honest, I have never found it easy. There is nothing in me in that moment that is grateful for the mercy of God in pointing out my weaknesses to other people. But that's what it is, isn't it? That that God would so love me, he would show others an inconsistency in my life to have people love me enough to engage me over my shortcomings is actually mercy. So please, don't resist it. Invite it. Bring it on. And then receive it well. We're to hate what is evil. But again, that's not the whole picture. Because what's the next line? Paul says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And so, the the kind of community we're looking for here isn't just everyone running around with whistles in their mouths ready to penalise fouls and hold up imaginary yellow cards or red cards or even proper ones that you keep in your pocket just to make the point. How miserable would that be? Who would want to be part of a community like that? You know what I really love? I just love it when everyone is watching me and every time I mess up or slip up, they're going to be blowing a whistle and pointing at me. Oh, that's that's the kind of community I want to be part of. No, 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 no. It would be a miserable, it would be a horrible way to relate with one another. So we don't only hate sin, but also the flip side is we encourage one another. We push one another along to cling on to that which is good. Let me just give you a couple of verses here. First of all, Hebrews 10, verse 24. The writer of the Hebrews says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, 
Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I love the premeditation in this verse. Let me consider, let me think in advance of, let me dwell on how I might encourage those around me into love and into good deeds. Proverbs 10, 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. I want to be a man who speaks life into the people around me. I want to point out things that they do well. I want to encourage them to be brave and confident and courageous, that that they wouldn't be timid in the face of the things that God has called them to do. I want to engage them. I want to encourage them. I want to walk with them faithfully in their lives. Because you know what? Genuine and courageous that they wouldn't be timid in the face of the things that God has called them to do. I want to engage them. I want to encourage them. I want to walk with them faithfully in their lives. Because you know what? Genuine community not only hates what is evil, but it also encourages clinging on to what is good. Let's keep reading. Next thing Paul says community not only hates what is evil, but it also encourages clinging on to what is good. Let's keep reading. Next thing Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly or sisterly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Now, we allow this to kind of filter down and sink in, sink in. I think some of us would have to say this is ever so slightly problematic. I mean, don't look at them now, but there may well be people in the room who you can think of who ever so slightly get on your nerves. So what do we do about this? No nudging one another, please. Uh, How do we love one another with a brotherly or a sisterly love, and then honour one another. Well, well I, th- I think the love part of this is where maybe we need to do some work, because if we have love for people, then probably we'll find it easier to honour them. I don't know what you think, but in my experience, this kind of love isn't something I can just turn on like that. I think love for others is stirred up as we begin to realize the reality of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That is absolute, despite others, be devoted to one another in brotherly or sisterly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Then let's look at this next line. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I don't want any of you to lose sight of the fact that everything we're talking about is ultimately for the Lord. All all the energy and all the zeal that we have in love, we have in loving and encouraging and engaging and walking with others is rooted in our relationship 
with Jesus. We'll never better keep extending patience and love and grace and honour to people until we've walked in those things in Jesus Christ. The whole cycle of being motivated to live out this kind of community only to watch the motivation fade as we actually start. The whole cycle of being inspired and then it just fading back down to nothing. It's broken when we grasp that nearness to Jesus makes us able to love and serve others well. Ultimately, it's all for the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, I could preach a whole series on this, uh, but I'm not going to. I'm going to kind of cram it into right now. And I'm going to do that because I think these three ideas are so interlinked, so interwoven that actually if you try and pull any one of them out, it doesn't quite work. If you try and make them stand alone, the whole thing disintegrates. It, It all starts with being joyful in hope. So regardless of my current situation, regardless of how great or how difficult it is, my joy is absolutely rooted in the hope of what God is going to do in the future. What's my hope? Upon earth, where there are no more funerals, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more man flu, no more sore throats, no more indigestion, no more terrorist attacks or anger, or bitterness, or tears. Those things are simply going to cease. They're going to come to an end. And it's because of that hope that I'm able to have joy right now. And so now, as a result, I'm going to be patient in affliction. Why? Because I'm not there yet. I'm patient because God is sovereign, he's in control, he's mighty. He he hasn't let anything happen in my life without his permission. And my greatest need in life is more of him. So if it's going to take a bit of suffering and pain and disappointment and things not working out as I would have wanted, if it's going to take more of that to experience more of his all-sufficiency then that's his grace to me. I can be patient in affliction because I know that God is sovereign. I know that my life is in his hands, my future is secure, and I know that today he will be all I need. So important we get this. You can love Jesus, you can follow Jesus, you can pursue him with your whole heart, and still have things not go the way you want them to go. The Bible is full of examples of this. Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Paul, John the Baptist. So many people who lived for God, yet the circumstances of their life were tough. So I don't know why we find this shocking or surprising when our lives are hard. We kind of think we can somehow put God in our debt. It's as if he owes us because we did this, 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 and this. I mean, I got up early this morning, and, and here I am. I'm, I'm meeting with the rest of the church, and over the last week, I, I read the Bible three times. So he owes me this. 
But we cannot put God in our debt like that. He doesn't owe us anything. You know, these are hard things to say, things that very few people want to point out to us. But I'd rather we were prepared for the sorrow of life and that we learn how to be patient in affliction so that in the midst of those times we wouldn't run from God but run towards Him and find more of Him at those times. And that when we're being patient in affliction, we'd also be faithful in prayer. Listen, if if you're not rejoicing in hope, looking forward to what's to come with confidence and assurance, then I don't know how you can be patient in affliction. Because patience means you're waiting for something. And so, without rejoicing in hope, you're going to find it very hard to be patient in affliction. Uh, And if you're not patient in affliction, what can you pray about? You see, these things are so closely woven together, you, you can't really pull them out. And just to be practical, here's what I think this looks like here in this community. We walk with one another through those peaks and through the valleys. We celebrate with those who celebrate and we mourn with those who are mourning. We encourage one another and when people are finding it hard to see it, hard to grasp it, we remind one another of God's faithfulness and his goodness. I think that's why Hebrews 10 urges us to not stop meeting together. Why? So that you might encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? This day we're rejoicing in, that we're hoping in and we're looking towards. And then look how it all ends. Verse 13, Paul adds, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Perhaps the biggest enemy of genuine community is selfishness. Our natural tendency to just keep on focusing in on ourselves and our needs and our situation. We've got to be an outward-looking community where there's need around us, we're to be generous, which means keeping our eyes wide open and our purse strings loosened. I recognise that as the church gets bigger and more complex, meeting in, at the moment, three sites across the city, we can perhaps find it hard to spot where people are in real need, which is why recently we set up our hardship fund takes its inspiration from the account of the first church in Acts 4, where members of the church sold possessions and gave the proceeds to the apostles for them to distribute to anyone who is in need in the church community. If you're here today, and for whatever reason you find yourself in financial difficulty, I'd urge you to chat with anyone on the site leadership team. We'd love to try and help you practically. And If you would like to give to meet the need, if you only knew where the need was, why don't you contribute into the hardship fund? All of us are called to share with God's people who are in need. And we're to be hospitable. You know, genuine community doesn't just happen in a one and a half hour meeting once a week. It happens as we open our homes to one another, as we eat together, as we share life together. 
I want to urge all of you to do more of this. Life's busy, money's short, there are always reasons and excuses why not, but this is a command of Scripture. Practice hospitality. Don't just wait for other people to invite you around. Be proactive. Please, take initiative. Be quick to show hospitality to others, and not just your close circle of friends. Always be looking to include others, to welcome others as you would like to be welcomed. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people these days confuse going to church with belonging to a church. Those are not the same thing. In fact, going to church isn't a biblical idea at all. Belonging to a covenant community is. So, as I wrap up, I want to encourage you to take these very practical, very specific commands of God ever so seriously. Why don't you, just over the next few days, the next few weeks, take a bit of time out to consider what steps you can take to apply all of this to your life. Won't you allow God to challenge you, to provoke you, to convict you, to to show you what needs to change in your life? And then throw yourself with fresh faith and energy into playing your part in forming and engaging in a God-glorifying community in this part of the city. Because we're on a mission. We're on a mission to see this city transformed. And at the end of the day, our effectiveness will stand or fall on the strength of community that people find when they come into contact with us. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you that you care enough about this whole subject to spell it out really clearly in passages like the ones we've been looking at today. I want to pray you'd send your Holy Spirit to us right now. Don't allow these words to be snatched away from us quickly. Spirit of God, would you underline them to us? Even now, would you just show us one or two things we can individually do to apply this.